0: City Light, you guys can grab a seat. Okay, so you guys just heard the story. This is going to be a fun morning. Okay, there's a lot that just happened in that story, and we get to track through it together, church. Uh, My name's Doug. I'm one of the pastors for our church. I'm so excited to get into Genesis 2, 18 through 25. This morning, we're going to look at the first ever love story, the first ever wedding. And I've been married for about nearly 11 years, and I still remember our wedding day. Okay, it was incredible. Whitney, my wife, um, she and I chose to not see each other until that moment when the doors open and she walks down the aisle. And our wedding was in the evening, so I had to wait all day long for that moment. So in the morning, I like read my Bible and some books, and that was, like, good, but not good enough, you know? And then all afternoon and early evening, I got to hang out with my groomsmen. And my brother was one of my groomsmen. He's a, kind of a joker. So we were just laughing our heads off. It was great. It was fun. But, like, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't her, you know? I was waiting for Whitney. I wanted to see her. Then there's kind of the trickiness during um, photos, where you're both in the same building, but you can't see each other, and so you're like going in and out of different entrances and exits, and I just felt like that kid at Christmas where I wanted to peek around the corner and see what I got, right? But I couldn't. I I held back. I just waited a little bit. Finally, the time for the wedding came, and me and my groomsmen and my pastor, we come, we walk up, and we kind of take our spots on the stage, and we're ready. Here we go. And then all these ladies parade through, Whitney's bridesmaids. like they're they're pretty you know like they're nice but like i mean that like they weren't whitney they weren't her i wanted to see her then finally they get their spot on the stage and the doors in the back close and the music changes And my heart's just like thumping. It's racing. I'm like, oh my goodness, here it comes. The doors fling open and out walks Whitney. She's wearing white. She is just beaming in her beauty, just gorgeous hair, smiling from ear to ear. I'm up on stage just loving it. I mean, I've got a ginormous smile on my face, so excited, tears welling up in my eyes. I can hardly take it. I literally had to bend down on my knees, just like hold myself up in this moment. It was incredible. And then she walks down the aisle, and I was like, she's here. She's here. She is here. It was this life-changing moment for me. I mean, it was so full of passion and emotion, this woman that I had chased after and longed for and dreamed of, my bride was finally here. I loved our wedding, and I'm kind of a sucker for weddings. I just like weddings. They're the best. And so I want to ask you, do you remember your wedding day? Can you still feel what you felt on that day? And anytime I bring up weddings, anytime someone's talking about weddings, most likely in a room this size, there's going to be mixed reactions, right? Some of you may be like me, oh yeah, my wedding day was fun, that was exciting, yay. Others, like single ladies, you've been dreaming of that day, you've planned it out in 20 different ways ever since you were a little girl, right? And single men, you haven't thought about your wedding day, you're just thinking about verse 25, how they were naked and unashamed. That's all you're thinking about. <laughs> okay, that's all right. We all have different responses when we talk about weddings. Some of you, when you think about your wedding day, it can even bring up, like, pain and sadness because, like, that day was great, but then the marriage hasn't been so great. Or it may remind you of when you lost that spouse to death or maybe to divorce, often worse. So we all respond to weddings differently, right? And this morning, we're going to look at the first ever wedding, a wedding that God was involved in. And this this story of the first wedding is really the story of when God created woman. And we know already, just from this sermon series and in Genesis chapter 1, that God created woman. We know that. It's a fact. It says so in Genesis 1. But Genesis 1 is kind of like this 30,000-foot point of view. It's a quick flyover. Genesis 1 is like the theology of man and woman, but Genesis 2, this story is kind of the love story behind it. Genesis 1 is the textbook, Genesis 2 is the romance movie. Genesis 1 is the husband telling the story while he's watching the game, okay? Genesis 2 is the wife telling the story while she's out with her girls on a girls night out, okay? That's the difference and we're going to get into Genesis 2 this morning and can I just remind you, this story matters. It's an important story. It, it shapes the way we relate with culture. It shapes how we interact with society around us. And if we'll listen in and kind of give our hearts to it, I think this very story can change our relationships. It can change our hopes. It can change what we believe and how we connect with one another. Whether you're single or married. Dating or engaged, this story can change you and influence you just by its sheer beauty and raw power. So let's pick up the story. Genesis 2, verse 18, is where we'll start. By this point in the story, we know that God has made a man. He created man. This is a dude, a guy. And God gave this man life, a place, and a purpose. And so most men would think, sweet, I'm alive. I've got a sweet bachelor pad. I've got a decent job. What else could a man possibly need, right? Well, great question. Let's see how God answers that question. Let's see what he says in Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Not good. Which, that's surprising because all throughout Genesis 1 and 2 thus far, all we've heard from God is God saw that it was Good. So God creates um, light and it was good. God creates plants and it was good. Animals and it was good. Every day of creation, every step of creation, we hear and God saw that it was good. Now all of a sudden, God's seen a man alone and he's going, mm, not good. That is not good. And if you're a man, that can be kind of hard to hear, right? I mean, us men, we have a tendency to kind of think that we're awesome, you know? Uh, We can get really self-sufficient, think that we're better on our own, that we don't really need any help. No, I'm not going to stop and ask for directions. Are you crazy, right? But God says, "Mm, we're wrong, man. He says we're wrong. It's not good that we should be alone. I mean, I used to think I was awesome. When I was single, when I was single, I thought that I was a lot like Jesus. I did, I thought I was like kind and patient. I thought I was like good and sacrificial. And then I got married and I was wrong, okay? I was really wrong. I had so many weaknesses, so much lack, so much just jacked upness. The problem was I just didn't know. I didn't see it, which is another problem. A gazillion blind spots in my life. I thought I was awesome, but I wasn't. And so men, just hear God's words this morning. It's not good that you would be alone. We aren't awesome in and of ourselves. God is saying, hey, you were created for more than aloneness. You were created for a companionship. And that can also be really affirming to us, whether you're man, woman, single, or married, just to hear God say it's not good that a man should be alone. I had a single gal, this was years ago, and she said to me, really frankly, she said, Doug, you know, I get that Jesus is there for me, and Jesus loves me and all that stuff, but sometimes it would just be nice to have someone to do the dishes with. She, she was just expressing her inward desire for companionship. She was just saying, "Man, I know God is good, but like, I just wish I had a companion here that I could see." And God's not mad at that desire. He's not saying, "No, I should be enough for you." He's saying, "It's not good that man should be left." alone. So God's affirming this desire for companionship, for someone to share life with. So what does God do? Genesis 2 verse 18, it's not good that man should be left alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Men, say this after me. I need help. Right, we do, and you did a good job saying that. Well done, men. We need help. So God had given Adam a monumental mission, just a grand task to work the garden and to keep it. It's a good purpose, a a huge God-given purpose, but it was larger than Adam. It was more than he could accomplish. So Adam needed some help. He needed help for the mission that God had given him. So God proceeds to help Adam realize how much help he needs. And so God brings all these animals past him. He just parades all these animals past him. You got lions and beavers and bears and dogs and not cats, because they didn't come until after the fall. They were, yeah, (laughs) not cats. um, But they were probably like pelicans, cows, you know, all different stuff. God brings them by. And Adam's job is to name these animals, okay? Adam does that, but then at the end of verse 20, it says, "...but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him." Bummer. Poor guy. Adam just did all this work of seeing the animals, naming the animals, and in naming those animals, he was accepting his God-given responsibility over them, towards them, and for them. So Adam's like making progress in this grand purpose that God had given him. He was doing the work that God set out for him to do, but at the end of it, there's still not a helper fit for him. None of them are suitable. None are fit for him. So the tension's kind of building in the story. Can you feel it a little bit? God's like, it's not good that this guy should be alone. Let's make a helper. Parades all the current living creatures by Adam, and there's not a helper fit for him. So have they exhausted all their options? What's going to happen? I'm sure Adam's freaking out, right? Because for Adam, all the options are done. But thankfully for God, he had a miracle up his sleeve. And that miracle is Genesis 2, verse 21. Let's look at it. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. Hallelujah, right? Okay, track through this with me and just pull, let's pull three things out. This is in your notes. First, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. God made the man sleep when the real action happened, when the miracle occurred, right, the, the climax of the story, like when, the, when it got really good, where was Adam? He was sleeping. He was knocked out because God knocked him out, okay? Men, don't we love like a sense of control? Don't we love a sense of accomplishment and achievement? Don't we love to be able to say, I did that. I accomplished that. I made that happen, but in this moment, the grand miracle of the story, in this moment, God put Adam to sleep. It's like he was saying to Adam, you know, well done, son, naming all those animals, but you take a nap and let me work my magic now. You did good. You fulfilled your task, but now let me do my work. He puts the man to sleep. Then after that, God took his rib. It's the first ever surgery, right? We marvel at modern medicine. But God's been doing good surgery from the very beginning. God takes one of Adam's ribs from his side. Basic truth, right? She didn't come from his head to be over him. She didn't come from his feet to be under him. She came from his side so that she might be near to him, intimate with him, beside him, equal in value and dignity and worth. God takes one of his ribs. Then after that God makes a woman. God made woman. Now, this is going to sound really elementary and redundant, but who made the woman? God did. God made the woman. God personally handcrafted this woman. He built the woman. He took the time and the energy to imagine her and to plan her and to measure her out and to make her. He crafted her brain, her emotions, her body, her taste, and her appetite so that every woman ever enjoys chocolate. God did all of this stuff. God valued how she felt, how she experienced life, how she processed relationships. God designed women with unique strengths and with unique weaknesses. God was active in the creation of woman; He wasn't passive. God was involved in the development of woman; He wasn't checked out. God worked a masterpiece with women, not a leftover, not his second thought. God makes Woman. And so let me just apply this. Men, God made women and he cares deeply about them. Deeply. So the question is, men, do you? Do you? How are you relating to the women around you? Fathers, how are you relating to your daughters? Are you relating to them with intricate care and intimate concern like God does here? Husbands, how are you relating to your wife? Are you imagining who she is and how wonderful she is? Are you planning and preparing for her growth and beauty and development and wisdom? Are you excited about her gifts? Husbands, how are you relating to your wife? And single men, how are you relating to single women? Are you treating them with the utmost care, honesty, absolute purity, full integrity? Listen, men, God made women and He cares deeply about them. They are not second class. They are not subpar. They are not junior varsity. They are not leftovers or afterthoughts. God made women. They're not to be played with, toyed with, lusted after. They're not to be rejected, suppressed, or ignored, or neglected, or kept at arm's length. God made women. And listen, God is God. He could have made woman any way that he chose, but he chose intentionally to create woman personally, intimately, handcrafted. God cares about women. God made woman. And women, can you just hear the flip side of all of that? How precious you are to God. How dear you are to his heart. Listen, in God's eyes, you're not forgotten. In God's eyes, you're not second class. In relationship with God, He delights over you. God personally handcrafted you. He wonderfully wove you. He carefully created you. God cares about you, women. God cares about you. So, no matter how distant your dad, or how wrong your husband, or how rude the man, God cares. No matter how close your dad is or how sacrificial your husband or how kind the man is, God cares. God made woman. Amen. So now we've got in the story, we've got a man and a woman. We've got a man and this wonderful woman that God created to help this man with his task given to him by God. Okay, the scene is kind of set. We got the characters. They're in the garden, right? And I'm sure the garden's looking marvelous. It's looking good. And I'm sure God put a center aisle in the garden just because he was probably preparing for what was next. What comes next is the wedding, okay? And the wedding starts at the end of verse 22. Genesis 2, verse 22 simply says, God brought her to the man. God was the first daddy to escort his daughter down the aisle. It was that stunning moment when in the back of the room, the the doors fly open and there's Whitney just looking gorgeous, wearing white, just like brilliantly beautiful. I mean, just shining in splendor. And right next to her is her dad. She didn't come alone. She came under the care, the protection, and the concern of her dad. He brought her to me. And I hope he was thinking happy thoughts about me. That would have been nice. He brought her to me. I just, I love these moments in weddings, right? When the dad or the stepdad or the grandpa or the the brother or the, the pastor, whomever it is, they get to escort this cherished bride down the aisle. They bring her to him. And that's exactly what God did at the first wedding with the first woman. He brought her to the man. Now, what was Adam's response? How did Adam respond? Did he, like, write it down in his catalog of species? Mmm, let's go with woman. That'll work. Right? Did he, like, oh, nice God, and then just, like, go back to the game? Did he shake her hand and wish her well? Ah, you'll do great in this world. Good job. You know? No way! No way! Adam flipped out, okay? It's not obvious in the text, but these are the first ever human words in the Bible, and they're a love song they are they are a poem genesis 223 adam bust out in some spon- spontaneous poetry then the man said this at last finally, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam does his job, okay? He names her, which is him accepting his God-given responsibility towards, for, and over her. So he does his job, but he does it with just exploding enthusiasm. He's singing a song. He's bursting with bravery. He's jumping for joy. Yes, finally, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's not some distant species or strange, weird animal. Like she's from me and she's of me. Oh, wow. Yes. She's going to be called woman because she was taken out of man. Yes. That's how Adam responded. Okay. He responded with joy and passion and emotion. In all the weddings that I've done, there is nothing worse than a bored groom. Right? You've been to a wedding like that, I guess. Nothing worse than a bored... I mean, she can spill red wine on her white dress. The music can go all wrong. The pastor can mispronounce the names. But there's nothing worse than a bored groom. And there's nothing better than a glad groom. Nothing better than just a groom who is celebrating. I had weddings this summer I was doing. The groom is just like crying, tears streaming down his cheeks. He's just smiling. That's what Adam was doing. He was celebrating. He was excited. I mean, if it would have been Chris at his wedding, he would have just busted out a rap song for his girl right there. If it was Gavin, he would have like, written a poem with alliteration and rhyming words and stuff like that. So Adam, he's like singing a song, speaking poetry and doing work at the same time. It was incredible. He had never, ever been happier. Not long before, God made Adam and then breathed his life into his nostrils. And Adam woke, beholding the face of God. And now that good God had brought to him this beautiful pride. Adam was happy. Could it possibly get any better than that? Yes, it could get better. That's verse 25, men. They were both naked and unashamed. I can't elaborate because there are kids in the room, but trust me, it got better, okay? It was awesome, okay? I mean, it was incredible, over-the-top, thrilling, joyful, exhilarating. I mean, Adam, God, the woman, Everybody loved the wedding day. Everybody had an awesome time. It was amazing. So that is the first ever wedding. Then after that, in verse 24, Moses, who wrote this story for us, and so God through Moses records a truth for all of us. This is a truth that is meant to endure time, to to last throughout generations, through all cultures right on up to us today. And this is the truth, Genesis 2 verse 24, he says, therefore, therefore just takes us right back into the story, right? Therefore, because of everything you just heard about the first wedding, in light of that, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So with this verse, God is saying that awesome love story wasn't just for Adam and Eve. There's elements of that story that are meant for us today. There's elements of this story that are meant to carry throughout times and cultures and generations all the way through. And so my question is, what are those elements? Do I need to name a bunch of animals before I can get married? Like, do I go to sleep and he turns my rib into Whitney? Like, what are the elements He lines it out for us really simply in Genesis 2.24. Three timeless truths from this love story for us today. Number one, a man leaves home. He leaves mom and dad. He becomes his own man, a grown man, who no longer relies on mom to make him sandwiches for his lunch. This is a man who can do his own laundry, takes responsibility, And keeps his own job. He leaves home. So ladies, that's the kind of man you're looking for, okay? You're looking for a guy who's faithful. I'm dead serious, okay? He's faithful, he's responsible, and he can keep a job. That's who you're looking for, okay? If he can't keep a job, he can't keep you, okay? Just leave him at the door and leave. It's okay. We'll take care of him. Number two. So first he leaves home. Number two, he holds fast to his wife. He holds fast to his wife. Now, I know this is going to sound like politically charged because of our day and age, but I promise I'm just teaching Genesis 2.24. It's just the Bible. The timeless truth that is drawn from this wonderful love story is that a man marries a woman, and a woman marries a man. That's not just the Adam and Eve story and then things changed over time and cultures. That is the timeless truth from that story. Marriage is meant for a man and a woman. And you're like, oh, but that's just oral history. You know, it probably got skewed along the years. But here's the deal. That's not true. But if it were true, Jesus himself quoted this verse. He endorsed it, he taught it, and he believed it. And then even after Jesus' words coming directly out of his mouth, the apostle Paul, when he's writing the New Testament for all churches, He quoted, endorsed, taught, and believed this truth. Genesis 2.24 is the mega theme of marriage all throughout the Bible. And it's meant to be the mega theme of marriages all throughout cultures and civilizations up until today. Marriage, according to the Bible, is between a man and a woman. That's the truth. At the same time, many of us, we, we know that, but we need to hear those words, holds fast. Holds fast means that they entered into a lifelong covenant. It was a commitment that could only be separated, could only be broken apart by death itself. He enters into covenant with with her. He goes all in, pours all of his life into her. He gives up everything so that he can have her. She is his greatest prize. He's pouring all of himself into her. He holds fast, clings to his wife. That's number two. Number three, the husband and wife will become one. The two shall become one flesh. So you remember in the story, just as Eve was taken from Adam's side So now Adam belongs with Eve and Eve belongs with Adam. They were one and then they became two by God's creation. And now God is in the business of making those two into one. God's delight and design for marriage isn't two people on parallel tracks who just get along. God's delight in his design for marriage is two people becoming one. He wants oneness in your marriage. What is that? Dennis Rainey answers it for us. He says it this way oneness in marriage is formed by a husband and wife who are grafting intimacy. Two different branches coming together and grafting intimacy, trust, and understanding with one another. It's a couple chiseling out a common direction, purpose, and plan. It demands a lifetime process of relying on God and forging an enduring relationship according to His design. It's more than a mere mingling of two humans. It's a tender merger, a tender union of body, soul, and spirit. So God desires, he delights in, and he designed marriage so that the two can become one. He is after oneness, not roommate living, not shacking up for the night, not dating around, not just giving it a fling, let's see if this marriage can work out, not even just for economic stability or better financial security, not even for better ministry impact. God's delight in his design for marriage is that the two might become one. They were separating, he's going, hey, pursue oneness. God wants oneness for your marriage. Why? What's the big deal about oneness? If Genesis 2:24 is the, the mega theme of Scripture when it comes to ma- marriage, why does God highlight oneness? Here's why this eight verse, love story in Genesis chapter 2 is a window into, it's like a small picture of the eternal love story between Jesus Christ and his church. We're seeing an earthly marriage, an earthly wedding, and what we're meant to see is a grand eternal relationship, pursuit, and marriage between Jesus Christ and his Church, So go back to Genesis 2.24, and let's go through those three things and connect them to Jesus, okay? First, a man leaves his home. So Jesus Christ left his home. The comforts and security of heaven. Jesus had it all, I mean... His father was wealthy beyond limit. He was the darling of heaven. Everybody loved him, adored him, wanted to be around him. He had endless prestige, and he left it all. He stepped down off his throne. He stepped down out of heaven. He left to come after his bride. He leaves home. Number two, a man holds fast to his wife, and so Jesus Holds fast to his bride. Jesus enters into an eternal covenant sealed by his blood. He enters into that covenant with all who will put their faith and trust in him. It's an eternal, complete commitment. He pursued and he chased and he longed for his bride. He held fast even to the point of being willing to die for her. When I wanted to show my desire to cling to Whitney... I gave her a really expensive diamond ring. When Jesus showed his desire to cling to his people who would put their faith in him, he gave his very life for them. Jesus held fast even to the point of death. Number three, the two shall become one. And so it is, Jesus becomes one with his bride. The big theological term for this is union with Christ. We become one with Jesus. What was his goal in pursuit of his bride? What was he after? What made him hold fast even to the point of death? Jesus wanted to be one with you. He wanted oneness, a, a tender union of life and spirit with you. So often we think that Jesus is, just wants to use us, right? He saves us so that he can just use us to get things done in his kingdom and make the world a better place and things like that. But listen, Jesus didn't go to the cross and to his grave just so he could use you. He went to the cross and to the grave so that he could know you so that you could know him. He wants to be known by you. He wants to be intimate with you. Jesus died so that he might have relationship with you, and you might know the glories of relationship with him. Jesus left his all to love you so that you might leave your all to love him. Therefore, Jesus' invitation to you this morning isn't get it together work out these marriage principles, and do a better job so that I can use you more. That's not the invitation. His invitation to you is that you might know him, that he might be known by you, that you might become one with him, grafting into Jesus Christ intimacy, trust, relationship. Jesus' invitation is to relationship because, and then out of that, it might overflow into your marriage to where you delight in, you enjoy, you run after, and you celebrate one another as spouses. You graft oneness into your marriage because you have grafted oneness with Jesus Christ. That's the invitation this morning. Your marriage is a small picture of the eternal relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32, he writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We've heard that, right? It's a direct quote of Genesis 2.24. Here's how he wraps it up. This mystery is profound. This is kind of shocking. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. That's us. Let's pray, church. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you so much for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us so that we might be one with him. Thank you that you aren't just out to use us to get stuff done. You're not just looking for that alone. Yes, you use us, and we're thankful for that. But thank you, God, that through your Son, Jesus, you want to know us. You want to be known by us. So to that end, Holy Spirit, would you just come and stir in our hearts, stir in our minds so that we leave this sermon this morning wanting to know Jesus more. And towards that end, we're going to take communion this morning, church. And communion is a a looking back, a remembering of the price that Jesus paid so that he could be one with us. It was his pursuit as a groom for his bride, and in that pursuit, he was willing to lay down his life. The, the bread reminds us of his body sacrificed for us. The juice reminds us of his blood spilled for us, because here's the deal. We weren't Eve. We weren't clean. We weren't wearing a white dress. We were dirty and sinful. We had left him behind. We had ignored him. We had turned against him, But Jesus, by grace and by mercy, he still ran after us with love, giving up his life for us. And so communion is all about coming forward and saying, oh, Jesus, thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. So, Father God, would you make it alive in us this morning? I pray for married couples as they come forward and take communion. May they remember the incredible joy of getting to be one in you and with each other. I pray there would be husbands praying with their wives and wives praying with their husbands. Would they do it together this morning? Father, I pray for singles this morning as they come and take communion. Would you show them the the glories of the eternal marriage between Jesus Christ and his church? And may their longing for an earthly marriage, may you affirm that and say that's good, and at the same time point them to the greater marriage with Jesus Christ. Would you do a work of restoration, redemption, and healing in many of us? We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.